You know, in our topsy-turvy, upside-down world, a lot of the foundations are being uh, challenged and uh, shaken, but one thing remains firm. Uh, that is the truth that dad jokes are funny. And uh, so I am going to start uh, by, uh, if you're not familiar with, with, with uh, dad jokes, I'm going to start with some dad jokes. This is what a dad joke is. A dad says something that is witty, intelligent, and hilariously funny, unquestionably funny, and then the father's family honors the father by groaning. That's how it, that's how it normally goes, okay? So get your groans already. Here's a couple of dad jokes to get us started here on, uh, on Father's Day. Uh, uh, the, there was a survey that indicated the best music to listen to on Father's Day. If you want to create the right vibe, if you've got uh, fathers around, of course, it's at pop music. Pop music. Um, we all know, you know, the, the, the classic joke about the chicken crossing the road. Well, why, why did the children want the dad jokes to cross the road? So that they would get father away. I actually, some people actually laughed at that one. That's good. Uh, you should always... Uh, uh, um, um, buy your, your father, particularly if your father is a golfer, you should always buy him. It's always good to have an extra pair of socks in your golf bag. I'll tell you why. You should always have an extra pair of socks in your golf bag in case you get a hole in one. These uh, well-meaning but obviously misguided children wanted to make their father a salad for Father's Day. And uh, that was the first thing they did wrong. Then they got in some sort, of, uh, some sort of argument or fight, and they're throwing lettuce around and all of that sort of thing. One of the boys ends up getting a big piece of lettuce stuck in his ear. And so they had to go to the emergency room. They were from Brampton. Of course, they went to Georgetown. And <laughs> the doctor there looks at the lettuce sticking out of the son's ear, and he looks over at the dad, and he says, this is just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> this is uh, Abram and Sarai's 10th uh, Father's Day. I don't know if they practice Father's Day in the ancient Near East, uh, but they've been waiting on the promise of God to, uh, to be fulfilled. Uh, they've wanted a child long before God ever showed up and gave them the promise and told them to move to the promised land and said that they would have offspring who outnumbered the stars in the sky. But here they are still waiting. Sarai here takes a center stage. She uh, puts forward her uh, maidservant, uh, Hagar. That's the title for today's message, just Hagar. And what we see here is another evidence of the ups and downs of Abram's life. I mean, last, last week, Genesis chapter 15, this is sort of like a high point. Even though Abram had questions, he had doubts. I mean, he, he saw the stars, he saw this covenant ceremony God had proven to be faithful to his, to his promises and, and assured Abram, and Abram believed God, it was counted him as righteousness. He was real, uh, really on a high point, and now he's headed on a low. 
You know, the other day I was in a meeting with Dinesh Lukos, who's one of our, uh, one of our deacons, and he just, he wasn't himself. He left in the middle of the meeting, he came back with a glass of water, he was, didn't seem comfortable in his chair, he wasn't able to concentrate. He said after the meeting, he said, I'm, I'm sorry, Ted, I, I went to Canada's Wonderland with my daughter today, and I was just all those roller, he says, I still feel like I'm spinning after all of those uh, roller coasters. And, and sometimes when we study the life of Abram, that's kind of how it feels, like, like the G-force or, or, or the, the, the drop in elevation where, where it's, it, he seems on such a high, but you can kind of hear that click, 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 click. And we're headed for a real downward spiral in Abram and Sarai's life. What we're going to see is Abram and Sarah here, are, they're going to try to solve a problem but their solution to the problem is worse than the first problem. And they're going to try to clean up the mess, but, but, but the mess is going to get worse because of the method by which they clean it up. They're trying to help God along in his fulfillment of his plan and his promises. And what we're going to see today is that failure to wait on God to solve our problems eventually creates more problems. But that God hears and God sees and God is faithful uh, even when we fail. So in God's expert timing, I didn't plan this. This is a, this is a Father's Day message, where a story where Abram does become a father. Um, not according to God's ways or God's plans and not in a way that Abram and Sarah really expected the whole thing to turn out. But oftentimes... There are, there are decisions that are made. There are consequences to those decisions. And that's where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 16. So let's, let's bow our heads and pray for God's help now. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, asking for the power of the Holy Spirit to help us in this moment, to speak to us and to teach us, Lord. This is an obscure story. It's a confusing story. But Lord, because you are in this story, it is a beautiful story. And there is so much that we can learn, not just about Abram and Sarai, not just about ancient Near Eastern culture, but there's so much that we can learn about ourselves. And there's so much, Lord, that we can learn about you. Thank you for what is revealed about you in this passage. And we pray, God, that we would leave here with a better understanding of even in the midst of the failures of fatherhood all around us, that you are a faithful father and that you love us, that you call us by name and that you pursue us. So be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've kind of broken the story down into three parts. So here's the first one. It begins with an unwise plan. An unwise plan. Plan. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, we already know, we already know that she's Abram's wife. Why is that detail repeated? I'll, I'll just underline that. We're four chapters into the story. We know who Sarai is, but that's a really important detail that is redundantly added here. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now, how would Abram and Sarah, who came from Ur of the Chaldeans and are now in the promised land living in Canaan, how did they end up with an Egyptian servant working for Sarai? 
Well, that's because this unwise plan is kind of a derivative plan from another unwise plan. Remember in Genesis chapter 12, when they they made it to the promised land, they believed in God's promises, and then there was a famine and things got hard, and as soon as things got hard, they thought, we can't be in this place because it's hard here, and so they left that place and they went to Egypt. And Abram had this unwise plan about lying, telling Sarai to say, say you're my sister. And uh, Abram was probably thinking, hey, you know what? This will just buy us some time. We'll get some food. Even if someone proposes, we'll just stall. Maybe collect the dowry and escape in the middle of the night. But Sarai didn't just capture the, the attention and the affection of some random Egyptian guy. She ended up being brought into Pharaoh's harem. And then we're told that Pharaoh... Because he took such an interest in Sarai, we're told in Genesis chapter 12, and for her sake, he, being Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female servants from Egypt, like Hagar, female donkeys and camels. So Hagar had come into the family business as a result of that first unwise decision when Abram chose to leave the promised land and to go uh, to Egypt. Sarai says in verse 2, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She says, Go into my servant, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, this idea of of a woman giving her husband a servant to bear children on her behalf, this was commonly practiced at the time. There's document after document from the ancient Near East, law codes or writings of kings or other writings that indicate that this was a common practice. Contrary to what like Margaret Atwood and The Handmaid's Tale would, would want you to believe, this is not what the Bible prescribes, like, like what should happen. This is an example of the people of God acting like the world around them. Sarai would have been getting to know some of the other women in the community, and they said, oh, I see that you're childless. Hey, see that little one over there? Not really my kid. Yeah, I just, I just, we were struggling with infertility, and we were praying to our gods, and nothing was happening, and so I just gave, I, I hired a servant, sort of as a, as a surrogate, and, and that's how we ended up with that child, and that child, by the way, and also, and then another neighbor says, oh yeah, we did the same thing. It was commonly practiced. At the time, the people of God get themselves into trouble when they stop relying on the Word of God and start looking at the wisdom of the world around them. And and that is what this story is about. This isn't about how it's okay to have multiple wives or, or no, the Bible does not prescribe that. This is an example of Abram and Sarah. Rather than trusting in God's promises, they rely on the practical or pragmatic wisdom of the world around them. Notice how she selfishly says, I shall obtain. She she wants to just use Hagar. Hagar is just a, a womb with legs. And and she wants to use her so that she would obtain. 
the child that she so desperately wants to have. Again, culturally speaking, she would obtain that child. That, that, the, that if, if, this, were, if this, uh, this practice were to be carried out, that if the servant or the slave were to give birth, that, birth, that child would be considered the child of the first wife. It says in verse 2 that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. There's no calling on the name of the Lord like they had done at other crucial moments, crucial decisions. They don't build an altar. They don't pray about it. God had been very faithful in answering questions in the previous chapter. They don't ask any questions. Abram just listened to the voice of Sarai. In verse 3, it says, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. So before we're too quick to judge Sarai, let's just step into her shoes here for a second. It's been a decade. Like 2013 to 2023, that's a long, that's a long time, right? 10 years is a long time. And we talked about last week about how it's difficult when you, you've received the promise, but you haven't yet seen the fulfillment and you're kind of stuck in the middle, not only that, Sarai, she's hearing all of this stuff secondhand. God's appearance to Abram, that was private. It was Abram, Abram, it wasn't Abram and Sarai who were counting the stars or looking at the smoking pot or the burning torch walking through the animals who had been cut in half. Abram's relaying all of this second. So Sarai, she's very caught in the middle. It's a very confusing and difficult time for her. But then look, listen to how Moses, the narrator, describes how this works in verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, we already knew that, right? Verse 1, it was already redundant in verse 1, and now it's being repeated again in verse 3. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, yeah, we already knew that as well from verse 1, and gave her to Abram, her husband. Of course Abram is her husband because you already said that Sarai is Abram's wife. You understand? You see the intentional repetition and clarification of the roles in the relationships? Sarai's the wife of Abram. Abram's the wife of Sarai. And Hagar is the servant of Sarai. The, the, the narrator here is making clear the roles and the relationships so that we would know that this is wrong. That they, are, that they are sinning against God. They are sinning against Hagar. They are sinning against God's design and intention and purpose for marriage. Not only, not only does the repetition of the roles tell us, but even the language that's being used. It says here that Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. Does that sound familiar? A woman taking and giving to her husband. It's the exact same language from Genesis chapter 3. Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband. Sarai took Hagar and gave, took that which is forbidden and gave it to her husband. And just like Adam is recorded in Genesis chapter 3 verse 17 as listening to the voice of his wife, here we have Abram listening to the voice of Sarai. We talked about this before with Noah and Adam. Same role, different actors. 
We, we see the cycle repeating. Adam and Eve were given a blessing and they mess it all up. Noah was given a blessing and he messes it all up. Abram and Sarai were given a blessing and here they are messing it all up. Now, don't be thrown by this second point here. It is, it is a good thing for husbands to listen to their wives, okay? Most of our children would be dead if husbands didn't listen to their wives. So why does it say twice in Genesis 3 and now in Genesis 16? Why is it that Adam and Abram are both sort of being judged, being condemned because they listened to their wife? Here's why. It's because their wife was telling them to go against what God's word said. That's the difference. It is a really good thing for husbands to listen to their wives. Someone say amen. amen. Yeah, it is a really, really good thing. But if your wife is contradicting or telling you to disobey the word of God, you, don't, you plug your ears. If your husband tells you to disobey the word of God, you plug your ears. If your parents tell you to disobey the word of God, if your government tells you to disobey the word of God, listen, there are authority structures, there are relationships. It is good for us to listen, husbands, wives, citizens, government, children, parents, all of these things. But ultimately, our authority is the word of God. And that's where all of this went wrong. They were trusting in a cultural practice rather than trusting in the promises of God. So Abram's starting to look like Adam. More accurately, Abram's starting to look like Lamech. Do you remember Lamech from, from Genesis chapter 4? He was the poetry writing polygamist that wrote uh, rock songs about all the women that he's sleeping with and all the people that he's killed from the line of Cain. This is who Abram's starting to, to look like. The only other polygamist recorded in the Bible is, is Lamech, and that's not a great model to follow. Abram and Sarai, rather than looking like the people of God here, they just look like the world around them. God doesn't need our help in carrying out his plans and his purposes. God wants us to trust him, but so often we want to just try and use our own effort rather than trusting. The Apostle Paul was trying to help the church at Galatia to, to, to come to grips with it. The Christian life is not about trying. It's, it's about trusting. It's not about what you can do. It's about what God has done. It's not relying on your own strength. It's relying on God's strength. And he says in Galatians 4, he says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. The son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. This is talking about Hagar. It, it, it was a human-centered idea, solution to the problem. While the son of the free woman was born through promise. And then he says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. And so he takes the theme. So Sarai, spoiler alert, eventually has a son named Isaac. We'll, we'll get there eventually. And, and in Galatians chapter 4, I don't have time to walk you through the whole passage. So here's just a chart that outlines the whole thing. Hagar and Ishmael represent relying on the flesh, 
where Sarah and Isaac represent relying on God's promise. He talks about how relying on the flesh, doing the Ishmael way or the, or the Hagar way is the earthly Jerusalem trying to fulfill the Ten Commandments where Sarah and Isaac point to the Jerusalem from above. The Hagar and Ishmael story tells us about trying to be saved by human effort and following the law while Sarah and Isaac teach us about being saved by grace and placing our faith in Christ. And then Paul warns at the end of Galatians chapter 4 that the Hagar and Ishmael thing just leads to more slavery, while the Sarah and Isaac way leads to freedom. And so this was an unwise plan to, to rely on your own ingenuity or to follow the ways of the world in order to accomplish God's purposes, to do what only God can do. That is a very unwise plan. And for Abram and Sarai, this unwise plan led to this, some unintended consequences. Some unintended consequences. Verse 4 says, And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. You could see how this could sort of start to play out. Hagar was... Sarai's servant and so Sarai was accustomed to standing over here and sitting over here and watching Hagar do things for her. Then as Hagar realizes that she's pregnant, she realizes, well, yeah, I used to sort of be, uh, um, I used to sort of just be a servant around here, but now, I mean, I am the mother of Abram's child. And so I'm not going to be doing everything that you want me to be doing. And you could picture her, you know, still being nice about it, where Sarai is like, hey, Hagar, can you go, you know, pick up those, those things? And then, and then Hagar's like, I'm sorry, you know, the baby. I really shouldn't do that, Sarai, because of, you know, the baby, your husband's baby, because I'm carrying him right now. Actually, Sarai, could you actually do some things for me? Because, you know, the baby. Women have a way about being nice about things, even when they're not being nice. Men, when they're not nice, they're just not nice. But women have this double-edged sort of thing where they can be nice and not nice at the same time. You know what I'm talking about, women. So you can picture Hagar doing that. It says that she had contempt. Uh... It means that she treated Sarai with cursing. It's the same root word. Remember back, remember the promise from Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. She's cursing Sarai. She's treating her with contempt. This was an unintended consequence. Sarai sort of pictured, you know, the conception and then holding a baby in her arms, but she didn't really picture eight months of Hagar in between. And this, this is why we rely on God, and this is why we do things God's way, is because we can't imagine all of the possible scenarios. We don't know all of the details, all the permutations of how things will turn out, but God does, and that's why he continually warns us to trust in him. 
So this unwise plan ended up with some unintended consequences. And look at, look at Sarai's response, verse 15. Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. What, what are you talking about, Sarai? The wrong done to you? This was all your idea. And now you're spinning the whole thing around like this is somehow Abram's fault or, or Hagar's fault. She's not taking responsibility. Again, they're looking a lot like Adam and Eve. They're blaming one another rather than taking responsibility for what they've done. It's not a good look for Sarai. She says, I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt, with cursing. May the Lord judge between you and me. I don't know if you really want the Lord to be judging right now, Sarai, because it's wouldn't turn out well for you. But it wouldn't turn out well for Abram either. Verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Really, Abram? This woman is carrying your child. And you're, you're, you're just telling, you're telling Sarai just to do whatever she wants to her? Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. She ran out into the wilderness. I mean, the harshly there must be describing something really, really harsh. I mean, if pregnant Hagar thinks it will be better, better for me out on my own in the wilderness than it is to live among... Abram was very wealthy. She would have been well-fed. Even as a servant, she would have had a lot. If she's thinking it's better for me to be out on my own with a child in my womb than to be here, that must have been really, really bad. You see, but Sarai thought she was justified in treating Hagar so harshly because Sarai thought that she was the victim in the situation. When you're convinced that you are a victim and you start to think that way and you only think about what someone else has done to you, when, when you start to think in terms of I am a victim, then, then it, it can so often give you a license to react and respond to the sin that other people have done to you by sinning back against them. Because this is, this is a real mess. Let, let me just chart it out for you. It starts with Abram and Sarai. They sinned against Hagar by inviting her into this a polygamous, sexually immoral surrogacy situation. So they, they, they started it, Abram and Sarai together. But then Hagar sinned against Sarai by speaking to her with cursing, by, by treating her with contempt. But then Sarai, because of Hagar's sin, and Hagar's sin was because of Abram and Sarai's sin, then Sarai sins back at Hagar by treating her harshly. And then Abram sins against both of them by being so stupidly passive. This Father's Day, fathers, this family right here needs a leader. This was Sarai's plan. Abram should have said, maybe we should pray about this. And then he just recklessly tells his wife, just do whatever you want to do with Hagar. He is not leading. Loved ones. And, and everyone is somehow thinking that, that they are a victim. 
And so they feel justified in their behavior. Listen to these words from from Ekosh Balog. He says, a victim mentality magnifies the harm done to us and minimizes our own sinfulness. After all, we reason our sin is nothing compared to what others have done to us. But except for circumstances where we are innocent victims, for example, being robbed at gunpoint, etc., we often have some responsibility for our situation. We often have some part to play in the way things have turned out, even if only partially. But a victim mentality tells a false narrative, explaining that our situation, explaining our situation so that blame lies exclusively with the other people or circumstances. The foremost victim of human history never adopted the victim mentality. And the New Testament commands Christians to have this same attitude as Jesus. Even as we undergo persecution, or you could replace persecution with any kind of mistreatment, whether it's from outside of the church or inside the church or outside your family or inside your family, at work or at home, even as we undergo persecution or any hardship, we're never encouraged to adopt anything resembling a victim mentality. Instead, we are to act responsibly, doing good in the midst of persecution with the aim of helping our enemies come to know Christ. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. Not hating our enemies, but loving them. Sarai and Hagar and Abram were repaying evil for evil, insult for insult. And rather than loving their neighbor, they were hating their neighbor. Some of you are too young to know who Jerry Springer is. He passed away this spring. But you, you can, those of us who know Jerry Springer, you can picture Abram, Sarai, and Hagar being on chairs on the Jerry Springer show. With Sarai ready to throw one of those chairs. And yet, that same Sarai... We're told in 1 Peter chapter 3 is a godly woman with a quiet and gentle spirit that Christian women should look to emulate their lives after. Because, I mean, it's a roller coaster. Life trying to follow God is a roller coaster. There are definitely some lows. There are definitely some highs. But just like any mentor in your life, just like your small group leader, just like anyone, there are some, definitely some things that you want to imitate about them. But there are definitely some things that you don't want to imitate about them. It doesn't mean that we excuse or forget about those things. The Bible is so clear and really helpful in the way that it handles the warts and the scars and the wounds and the failures of its key characters. It's encouraging that Sarai wasn't perfect but could still be called a woman of faith. Think think about this. Think about it in terms of Abram. Uh, we're looking at you training and developing elders here, uh, here at Hope Church. Abram could not be an elder. Abram, the father of Israel, the father of faith, could not be an elder at Hope Church. He's not the husband of one wife. 
He's a polygamist. He would, he's not qualified. Because at this moment, low in his roller coaster, up and down. And yet, he is still someone who's repeatedly cited in someone in the, in the New Testament as someone who we should emulate our lives after. So Hagar goes and flees. And God goes and runs after her. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? This is a story about an unwise plan. It's a story about some unintended consequences. And then lastly, it's a story about unexpected grace. Unexpected grace. Hagar is caught in this bizarre love triangle. She is uh, broken. She is jaded. She sees no better option than just to run. She runs to, uh, to Shur, uh, which means wall. These were the, the walls, the fortresses on the way to uh, Egypt to protect uh, Egypt from invading armies. She's from Egypt. She's trying to go home. She's trying to leave behind the people of God. and the, if, if, if this is what it's like to, to follow this God of promise, I want nothing to do with it. She's going back to the idols of Egypt, to her old way of life. But God won't let her. He runs after her. Verse 7 says, the angel of the Lord found her. This is the first reference to the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appears a number of times in the book of Genesis. Uh, angel just means messenger, so this could be some sort of a, um, a divine, uh, or, uh, you know, angelic being, like, like a heavenly being. It could just be a human messenger, like a prophet. Some people think that this is like a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. We don't know exactly who the angel of the Lord is, but one thing we know for sure is when the angel of the Lord shows up, the people who hear the angel of the Lord speak respond in such a way as though they were speaking face-to-face with God. Like it's that close of an encounter. So God found her. And notice what he says in verse 8. He calls her by name. He says, Hagar. We, we serve a God who chases after us, who finds us, and who calls us by name. By name. Anthony's here this morning. I saw Anthony at the worship uh, um, night last night. I had to say, hey, how are you doing? You've been coming here at church? He's like, yeah, I was at first step with you like last week. I'm like, oh, shoot, man. I have a hard time remembering names. God doesn't. God knows everyone's name and and you might try to run from you might try to run from him and he will find you and he will call your name same role same actor the god who went looking for Abra, for for Adam and Eve in the garden and called them by name this this is the god that we serve and just like he did with Adam he asked some questions He's omniscient. He doesn't need the answers to these questions. He, he asks her, uh, 
Where have you come from and where are you going? He knows. He already said you're Hagar, servant of Sarai. We know, we know where you're, you're on your way to Egypt and you're leaving Sarai. So he doesn't ask for his benefit. He asks for her benefit. He wants her. God wants so badly for us to pour out our heart to him. To all our fears, all our failings, all our struggles, all our sins, all the ways that we've sinned against others, all the ways that people have sinned against us, all the ways that we've hurt others, all the ways that people have hurt us. God says, where, where have you been and where are you going? He calls us by name. She gives a very short answer, missing some pretty significant details. At the end of verse 8, she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. She doesn't mention that she's pregnant. She doesn't mention that Sarai has been treating her harshly. She doesn't mention that she's been, treating har been treated harshly because she treated Sarai with contempt. But God knows all of that. God gives one command and a pile of promises. And again, this is just how God works. He gives one command in, in verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The God who knows Hagar by name knows that Hagar has been mistreated by Sarai, but he also knows that Hagar has been part of the problem. Hagar didn't start this whole situation. The, 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 the intercourse with Abram, the conception, that was not her plan. That was not her. She was just doing what Sarai told her to do. She is in many ways a victim in that sense, but she's also responsible for the fact that she was not submitting to Sarai. She was treating her with contempt. And so God says to her, return. Return and be a servant. Return and submit. And Hagar listens. And every situation is unique, and I'm not giving a blanket instruction to everyone. This is Hagar's situation. Hagar could not control how Abram was going to behave or how Sarai could behave. But only the only person that, a that Hagar could control was herself. And so Hagar was going to go back and she was going to stop treating her, her mistress and her master with contempt. And she was going to submit, hoping that God was going to do his part. She was going to do her part. She was going to change her heart towards Sarai. And trusting that God would do his part. Sometimes we just need to walk into situations and say, I, I can't control how this person is going to behave or that person is going to behave or how they're going to react. I'm just going to control what I can control. And I'm going to do what God has called me to do in this difficult situation. That's what he calls Hagar to do. So he gives that one command. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. This is like the promise to, to Abram and, and his offspring. And so there is going to be a blessing and favor and multiplication on her child as well. 
Verse 11, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael means God hears or hearing God. A God who is listening. He heard all the harsh word. He heard the whole plan from Sarai and Abram. He heard that they, about how, how Hagar was, was treated uh, j- j- just like property, just like a womb with legs. He heard all of the mistreatment and the harsh treatment from Sarai. He's the God who hears. And he makes another promise, verse 12, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. Not exactly a compliment. But there's one thing about a wild donkey is a wild donkey is not domesticated. A wild donkey is not penned in. A wild donkey is not like Hagar. Ishmael was not going to be a slave. Ishmael was going to be free. Yeah, he's going to be a donkey, like a wild horse would have been a lot cooler. He's going to be a wild donkey. But he's going to be free. But then we get some more details. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. This is kind of the donkey part. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. His kinsmen like the other children of Abraham. You might have learned in school or seen in the news. There is this thing called the Arab-Israeli conflict. Are you, are you familiar with that? This is, this is the prophecy about thousands of years of warfare and conflict and animosity between the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael. Verse 13, so she called, on, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lehai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. This is the only instance in the Bible where rather than God revealing what his name is to his people, is here we have a, a, a person giving a name to God. That Hagar felt seen. She felt heard by God and she felt seen by God. Now, I don't know, I mean, God knows whether Hagar is with the Lord now. Some scholars believe that she didn't show signs of faith. I think this is pretty good evidence that she did, she did believe, she did trust in these promises. But you've got to imagine the original audience hearing this story, and it would have sort of been disoriented for them because they were slaves in Egypt who were wandering through the wilderness to get to the promised land. And, and this is a woman from Egypt who's a slave in the promised land who's wandering through the wilderness to get back to Egypt. It's sort of like this backwards story, right? And because of everything that they went through in Egypt, victim mentality... How do you think the original audience is hoping this story turns out? That Hagar dies and rots to death in the desert. 
probably how they would have been thinking this through until they got to this part. This part where the name Ishmael, God hears, and then the part about God being a God who sees El Roy. Because this would have changed things. Because when they think about how God hears and God sees, this would have sounded familiar to them. Because in Exodus chapter 2, when they are slaves in Egypt, when they are legitimately being victimized and oppressed and enslaved in Egypt, and their own children are being slaughtered, this is what it says in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. Coming up on the screen, Exodus chapter 2, 24 and 25. There we are. It says, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. The people of Israel could just, could see their story. It's backwards, but they could see their story in Hagar's story. And, and we can see our story as well. That our God is a God who hears and our God is a God who sees. He's heard the hurtful things that have been said to us, the things that ring in our head. You know, we're alone in the shower, we're falling asleep. We just can't forget these hurtful things that were said to us. He's also heard the hurtful things that we've said because there are other people who we love or we care about or other people that we don't love or care about. And there's things running through their minds from our mouths. And he heard all of that. And he sees all of it too. He's seen all of our sin and all of, all of the wrong things that we've done. He's even seen our very thoughts. And not only that, he's seen all the hurtful things that have been done to us. And he hears it all and he sees it all. And just like Genesis 16 is this complicated, intertwined mess. He sees that in our lives. He sees and he hears and he came to Hagar and he came to the slaves, the Hebrews in Egypt and he came to us and his son Jesus Christ. And he suffered and died and rose again so that we could be forgiven for the things that we've said and done and also so that we can have the power to forgive those who have said and done things to us. That he is a God who hears and a God who sees. Verse 15 takes us back to the promised land. It says, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram wouldn't have chose that name. There's only one way that he would have named his son that is if Hagar had told her story. If Hagar had given her testimony of how she tried to run from God but God ran after her. About how she wanted to run away from Abram and Sarai but how God told her and she wanted to obey and she came back. Verse 16, Abram was 86 years when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Listen, 
the, the story gets more and more complicated, more and more difficult. But Hagar did what God commanded her to do. The really strange thing about this story and the, the, what makes it hard for us is that Abram and Sarai, they represent, they're the people of God. They're the people of faith. They're the people who are trusting in the promises and yet they're the ones who are behaving in this way. And maybe you've been running from God because the people of God have, have used you or have hurt you or have wounded you in some sort of way. And maybe you need to be reminded today to look past those people and to see the God who is running after you, the God who hears and the God who sees and the God who sent his son Jesus Christ to suffer so that we could be reconciled to God. And not only reconciled to God, but that we could be reconciled to one another. Let's bow our heads and, and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, praying for your help, praying for your grace. As we aim to uh, apply this passage to our lives, Lord, we prayed at the beginning that we would have a clearer vision of who you are. You are a God who hears and a God who sees and a God who runs after us even when we try to run away. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would meet with us, that you would remind us, that you would bring us before the cross, that you would humble us, that we would freely own what we need to own, and that we would freely forgive what needs to be forgiven. And so, Lord, we pray for your favor and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.